Well, good evening, everyone. I'm super excited to have the opportunity to share this time with you all. When I looked at the schedule, I actually did a double take. I think this topic is one that for me had some shock value when I, when I saw it. And the reason for that is actually something that I think is important, which is when I was um, only just a few years ago, when I was still a young person, this was one of the questions that I struggled with the most um, in periods of doubting my faith. And so our brother Tony, I think, raised an excellent point in his prayer when he said to learn together to help us on our walk to the kingdom. Because that's exactly what answering these types of questions does. And that's why tackling these challenging topics, these topics that we do question, these topics that if we don't question could lead to issues because we don't have the answers to them. So we can lose our faith. So it's so important to, to look at these kinds of things. And I, I'm super thankful to have the opportunity to learn together with you tonight. It was so encouraging to go through this again, because it's one of those questions that I feel like you can learn the answer to, but still really struggle with it. So yeah, that's, that's what we're going to try to accomplish tonight. And I'm excited to be able to do that with you. And I look forward to discussion um, at the end when, we, when we've been able to look at these things together. So when we look at the question of why did God command for Israel to kill? Why did God command for Israel to kill seemingly innocent people almost some would say arbitrarily that's that's a shocking question like that is a very challenging question and the conquest of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua is amongst the most challenging passage really that we can be presented as Bible readers because at first glance, it's hard. This is not an easy thing. This is not a simple thing to understand, especially when we're all human. And so when we read about this kind of thing happening to humans, we're sympathetic with that. We feel that. And that's not a bad thing. At first read, we can wonder, does God take pleasure in violence? It seems like potentially God is a vengeful God that commands his nation to wipe out an entire group of people, men, women, and children. But when we look more into this, the awesome thing is that we come to find 
that the reasons for the conquest, the reasons for these commands from God are more complex. The scope of the destruction was actually potentially smaller than we might realize. And God's mercy was actually prevalent throughout. So let's start with what's hard. Let's start with what's so difficult about this question. Why would God send his people to destroy and take land that belongs to another nation? This is a tough question. We believe that God is a loving God, a caring God, a kind God. We know his attributes. And we read in the New Testament of Jesus, where he says, love your enemies. Why does God declare war on these people in the Old Testament if Christ, his son, is telling us to love our enemies? How does that line up? So this is challenging. This is real questions, questions that maybe you've asked before. I certainly have. And some of my closest friends really struggle and uh, really struggled and, and, and still do struggle with this question. And I think it's important to recognize that these types of questions, our young people will struggle with them. And if we're honest with ourselves, Knowing that they struggle with them, tackling them is, is so important. So hopefully we'll be able to gain a measure of clarity on this. So how are we going to do that? Well, context is key. Anytime we jump into a book, context is important. You don't just open a novel and start at chapter 10 because you don't really understand the characters. You don't understand the message. You don't understand the reasons for why things are happening. You'd be confused. Well, it's the same thing with the Bible. Jumping into a passage and cherry picking that passage and pulling it out of scripture and saying, this passage is a reason why God is awful and evil and horrible and sinful and terrible and whatever. You can't do that because this is a, this is a contextual book. The Bible's a contextual book. We don't just take the old Testament and we don't just take the new Testament. We know that they are linked. We know that there are ties. We know that God is the most amazing author in, in the entire universe. And so like most stories, we can't just jump right into the middle. We need to read the surrounding event, events. We need to understand why things happened. And if we do this, then hopefully we're able to understand why God makes the decisions that he does. So let's start in a good place to start the beginning. The very start on page one of the Bible God made the heavens and the earth. And he declared his creation to be very good. Very good. But very shortly afterwards, 
we read about the fall of man just a few pages later, where it says, therefore, just as Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so we read about Adam and Eve right away. The first thing that God presents presents to them as a, um, as a choice. They have a choice to make. And what we learn is that from the very start, humanity rebels. They quickly rebel. Instead of spreading peace, man chose to spread disaster and rebellion and sin. And again, that's, that's where we look at this verse in Romans and we go, okay, through one man sin entered the world. And so, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So right from the start, there was a choice. It was like, you can choose to sin, but if you sin, here's what's going to happen. You're going to die. Dying, you will die. And unfortunately, they made the wrong decision. And ever since, man has continued to make that same choice to serve sin. And so this, this problem is now here that the consequence of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death, we read. And so from the beginning, God gave us a choice. God gave man a choice to serve him or to serve sin. And from the start, man chose to serve sin. And as a result of that choice, as a result of that choice, we have death. And that continues to be the consequence for that choice. In Genesis chapter 12, we read of Abraham. We know this story. God chose Abraham. And he promised very special things to Abraham. He promised to make him a great nation, that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God then told Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land that was then inhabited by the Canaanites. I will give this land to your offspring. That's the land inhabited by the Canaanites. And God said that I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's a very special promise and it's a, a very beautiful promise and God keeps his promises. And that's important to know in the context of these challenging passages that we're looking at. And so continuing on, we have Moses and the children of Israel in Egypt and Moses leading the children of Israel from Egypt. And uh, we read into the book of Joshua where we find these things. So Moses, when he, when he, after he leads the people through the wilderness, he transfers his leadership to Joshua. And the task was now on Joshua to lead the people 
and he was to lead them to Canaan. Now remember, Canaan was the, Canaan was the land that God promised to Israel, to Abraham, to Abraham and his descendants, and that they would be a great nation. And so we now are, are presented with a problem because the Canaanites were there, but God promised that land to his special people. And so now we have Joshua who's leading this nation, who's coming in to take this land. And this is where it gets hard for us because now we have a group of people inhabiting a land that they've been in, but the nation of Israel is going to start a war because that's been promised to them. That's the land they've been told is theirs. And so this nation that's under God is going to be starting wars, which our natural thought is that's, that's hard to comprehend and hard to understand. But we've, we're starting to see already when God makes a promise, he keeps that promise. And when you're faithful to God, he will bless you. And when you oppose God, he will curse you. When you oppose his people, that's not good. That's a problem. So who were the Canaanites? Because this is super important for the context. If we're going to look at this, this problem and say, well, this is horrible. These people are, are living just peacefully in, in, their, in, their, uh, in their nation. And this group of Israelites is just going to come in and wipe them out. And that's, that's terrible. Well, first of all, these people weren't just people who were loving, serving God, doing nice, socially acceptable things. What we read about them is they were involved in idol worship, which is, it's, you know, it's bad. They were involved in fornication. We know that that's bad too. And we know that these are both things that God hates. Idol worship cannot stand. Fornication is a sin. But we even find that they were sacrificing children to Canaanite gods. These people were messed up. So that helps give some context to the people of Canaan. And hopefully that helps us to realize that when God chooses to do something, he does it for a reason. This is a, this is a pretty bleak description of the Canaanite practices. And it's an extensive and really awful list. And we can read more in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the point of this is, when God decides to do something, he does it for a reason. And we know that these are things that God hates. God said from the beginning, you have a choice. You're going to choose to serve me and do as I say and obey me, or you're going to choose to serve sin. The mission of Israel was clear. They were not to be corrupted by the wicked ways and practices of the Canaanites. 
Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. Not because of how amazing you are, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that he swear unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So two things there. Because of these people's wickedness, because of their sin, because they cho- they're people who choose not to serve God. Because of that, that's why God has decided to, to give these commands. And the second thing is, which is just encouraging to us, is that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's that ending part there. He keeps his promises, and that's encouraging, right? When God made a promise, I'm I'm going to give you this land, he keeps that promise. And so the motivation of Israel was clear. They were not to be corrupted by the ways of the nations around them. And that wickedness could not stand. It could not prevail. The battles in Joshua were not for the sake of killing. They were not for the sake of murder. And they were not because God takes pleasure in these things. They were a part of God's greater plan. To cleanse the land of evil to cleanse the land of wicked practices of idolatry, of fornication, of doing unspeakable things and offering up children as sacrifice. Remember, we have to remember that these these nations were wicked and unrepentant. And this is the reason to take up the sword. And this is a lesson for us. In our own lives, we need to take up the sword against sin, against sin in our own lives. And we need to guard against it. And we need to raise raise the call to others that sin is wrong. And we need to come away from sin. And we need to choose not to serve sin. What we find when when we dig a little bit deeper, and I try to keep this simple because this is what helped me to understand a little bit on why, why these things took place. So we try to keep things simple, but what we find when we look at the specifics of the situation is that God put limits on the conquests that the Israelites were to take part in. In Deuteronomy 2, um, there were certain tribes that were told that they weren't supposed to be harmed. So God outlined that, you know, certain tribes, you can't harm them. Um, There was a time boundary in place. So you can't just go around conquesting forever. There's a specific amount of time in Deuteronomy 7.22. There was also peace offerings. So the offer of peace was available upon meeting, um, upon terms. So basically, if if you guys choose to, to turn from your ways, if you accept our terms, if you accept God's terms, then... There's an offer of peace, but we're told Joshua eleven nineteen tells us that the offer was refused and multiple times. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the, inha- the inhabitants of Gibeon. And so that's encouraging as well, because 
when people paint this picture to you, when, when you hear this argument and people come up to you and say, God is evil. Like, look what he did. He just brought in this nation and just wiped out these people who are living in this happy land. That's not what it was at all. First of all, Jericho was, it wasn't like a, a cozy little um, campsite of people going about their day cooking. It was, this was a military base. This was a this was a fortified place. This is a, a place ready for war. Um, but we find that there were limits to to the destruction and peace was offered, and so that's really important to know because it wasn't arbitrary. God set out uh, boundaries. He said these are the boundaries. This is this is the terms, and uh, sometimes, especially when when people are are feeling very strongly about this, they don't paint it in that light. They'll say God is a horrible murderer. And he just went in and he slaughtered. He was vengeful and it was, it was awful. And when people say it like that, it's hard to, it's hard to flip the, the narrative, but you have to look at the specifics. You have to understand that there were, there were limits, there were boundaries and there was an offering of peace. And so in Genesis 15, in verse 16, we actually learned that, that God didn't just jump into this. He didn't just make this command on a whim. Genesis 15 and verse 16 says, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Their sin, when at, this, at the time of this verse, was not to the point that God would make this command at this point. So God waited. God gave them time. There was an opportunity for them to stop. And that's important to know as well. So then one of the things that is really good to, to think about is the question of was there salvation? Through all of these killings, did everyone die? was everyone slaughtered? Well, the answer is actually no. We know that the answer is no because we know of Rahab. Rahab and her whole household, it says in Joshua 6.25, but Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So what we find is throughout this, throughout this um, conquering of these people, there are these threads of hope. There are these threads of salvation. Not everyone was killed. Rahab and her household, however many people that was, those Canaanites were not wiped out. And there may be more that we're not told of. We don't know that. When the Bible says utterly destroy, we know that it can't mean utterly destroy. It's more of an idiom where it's when, it, when you have an entire city and only one house is left standing, that city's gone. But it doesn't mean that there wasn't salvation. Rahab was still saved. And so was her household. And it's interesting to think of Rahab. And we're going to touch on this a little bit at the end. But from Rahab's descendants was the line of Christ. And so we start to see a beautiful flip of the switch. A beautiful narrative that comes out of this. Um, 
that we're going to to really see is the answer to all of this and why these these questions are hard but why there is so much joy that can come from answering them and choosing not to serve sin and choosing to serve God and so when it comes down to it um, what we have to recognize is that when we look at this story there's no doubt that God was favoring his chosen people there's no doubt that God made a promise to these people that he would choose them for his people and they would be his chosen people and he would give this give them this land and he kept that promise so he did he did favor his chosen people and so as humans like that's that's something we can read and be like that's not fair that's not how it it makes sense in our human logical minds to work. But here's the thing. Does it make sense from a humanistic standpoint? Absolutely not. It doesn't make sense. There's nothing that indicates that our modern view of fairness is in the Bible. And that's something we have to realize. There's nothing that indicates that our modern view of fairness is in the Bible. When it comes down to it, God is the creator. He gives life. And only he has the right to take that away. We know that he knows the end from the beginning. We know that his ways are higher than our ways. And so even though we can look at this whole story and we can see that, you know, God was very systematic about the way that this happened and he did have a plan and he did have a chosen people and he did make a promise to those people and he did make good on that promise. And there was destruction that he worked through. What we come to realize is, God was calculated. He chose the best plan at the best time of impact to bring about his purpose on the earth. It was because of man's failing in the beginning, from the very start, that he chose to work in this way. It was because of man's failing that death was brought in because the wages of sin is death. God is the potter and we are the clay. We read of this in Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse four, we read of this concept of the potter and the vessel that the potter made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make it. So the potter has control over the clay. If the clay isn't good, if it's dried out or if it's got lumps in it that won't work themselves out, he's the potter. He chooses whether or not he works with that clay and he chooses how he works with that clay. And Isaiah 64 in verse 18 kind of drives this home where it literally says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work 
of your hand. And as someone who I like to think myself as fairly simplistic minded and very logical, this to me is the answer. This to me is the absolute answer. God is the creator. He created us. He created life. And as a result, we're playing by his rules. And even though our minds, being human minds and not God minds, can't comprehend and can't understand and don't like violence, God makes the rules and we play within those rules. We are the clay and he's molding us and he is the potter and he makes those decisions. And we're in a process of learning to understand God and working with him. And he's molding us and shaping us. And it's not going to be easy. And these questions aren't. Nobody's saying these questions are easy. These questions are incredibly hard. But what we have to come to realize is that God's ways are higher than our ways. And we're not going to be able to fully explain and fully understand and fully under or in fully comprehend everything that, that God says or, or that God does. But that's because we're not supposed to. He's God and his mind works in ways that we literally can't comprehend. And so what we find when we look at the context, we look at God's systematic approach, when we understand that this wasn't arbitrary, this wasn't a whim, these aren't, this isn't something that God takes lightly. We learn about Jesus. And when we look at, when we talk about looking at the context, we have to look at the whole Bible. What we find in the New Testament is this amazing character who we all know. And so, no. It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't, the Bible isn't fair, quote unquote, as we would describe it today. However, the point of reading the Bible isn't to look for ways to justify it with modern ethics or even to answer all of our questions. The story of the Bible is telling us about God's mission. And it's a mission to restore a rebellious creation who from day one, from the very start, from the very first book, chose to turn their back on him. And they knew the consequences, knowing full well the consequences. This creation was given a choice and unfortunately chose to serve sin and thus suffer those consequences. And these events, though hard to understand and hard to comprehend, these events are to point the rebellious creation towards the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you start to see this cool thread. Similar to Joshua, Jesus came to drive out evil out of creation. 
like cleansing, like the cleansing process we read about. But unlike Joshua, Jesus' weapons weren't violence. Jesus' weapons were wisdom. Jesus' weapons were love and sacrifice. And in the book of Joshua, God was triumphant in Canaan despite the death and the violence of battle. God was triumphant. And Jesus triumphed over death. Death itself. By choosing not to serve sin. But to instead deal sin that crushing blow. And so the conquest is not the evidence of a strange divide between Old Testament and New Testament. It's not a difference between an angry God, a vengeful God, and a loving God. Rather, Joshua points to Christ, the true conqueror. The conqueror who brings with him a new creation. He is the king. The king whose reign ushers in an eternal kingdom of peace, one that will last forever for all of creation. And this peace that will come will bring in a time more peaceful and more wonderful than Joshua's battles against evil ever could because he dealt sin that crushing blow. And he's offered to all who struggle with questions and who struggle with sin to turn our backs on sin and to answer those questions and to seek. Scripture tells us to seek and you will find. And so hopefully, I think we've only scratched the surface, but hopefully I've given some clarity on some of the reasonings behind this. And... 